um, and those that are viewing via Facebook. Uh, we're thankful that we have the means in which we can still commune together, even if from a distance. Um, prior to entering into Psalm 24, uh, we want to once again quiet our hearts and center ourselves on the God of glory. We want to center ourselves on Jesus Christ, the one that we can rejoice in, that through him we have made, God has made a way for us to be made right with him. So may you join me in prayer. Lord God, we do praise you for your son. We praise you that through him and him alone, we have been made right with you. Lord, as we just sang, it's not through us, but it is through your son, Jesus Christ. And God, we praise you that we can come and worship you, that we can come and proclaim the truths of Scripture, that we can gather as a people to praise you, to worship you. Lord, we thank you that we have the means to be able to come together, even in the midst of a pandemic, where we can come and be your people, to worship you, to commune together, to eat the Lord's Supper, to rejoice and yet, Lord, we recognize that some of us are not able to gather this morning with us. And God, we pray for, for our congregation that in a sense is afar, um, as they're either viewing via Facebook or we'll be able to view it later. Lord, we, we pray for those that are not able to be here. God, that you continually stir within their hearts a desire for you. Stir within their hearts a longing to be with your people. God, because you did not design us to be apart. You designed us to be a people really living in exile together, longing for the day when you return. So may we be a people that do that well. God, may we be a people that love our city well, Lord. May we be a people that love our nation well. God, we recognize that in this time, we live in a very divided nation. And Lord, we pray that within the branch community, we will be a unified people. Lord God, that we rejoice in what we have in common more than those small differences. Lord God, may we rejoice that you are the head of the church and each of us are members of it and, and we have a unique role to play, yet our role is vital. And so may we look outside of ourselves to see the vital role our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ have to play. And Lord God, we don't just pray for unity within the branch. We pray, pray for unity within our, our global universal church as well. God, may this be a season in which the body of Christ is bonded in the blood of Christ. May we rejoice in our similarities. May we seek unity in you. And may our unity truly change this divisive world and bringing this world to the foot of the cross for your glory, for your namesake. And lastly, Lord, we praise you for your word. We praise you that we get to come and commune with you, that the God of creation, the God of the universe, you actually commune with your people. Through your word, God, we have been given clarity on what to know, what to think, what to do. So God, as we open your word today, may you speak powerfully and boldly through me. Lord, may you take away my own desires and may the only desire be that your word be made known and that we leave this place changed and in awe of who you are. In your name, amen. Uh, we're continuing our series in the Psalms uh, throughout this summer and today we're gonna be in Psalm 24. 
So if you do have a physical Bible or you've got one on your phone, uh, please pull up Psalm 24 as we'll be going through this psalm today. When you know that you're scheduled to meet with a really important person, you often prepare yourself for that encounter. And I'd argue that, that more often than not, if that person is elevated in importance, the more important they are, the more time you're going to put into that preparation. I mean, you want to get all your ducks in a row. You want to look the part. You want to be presentable. I mean, a great example is think of, think of a wedding day. And we have a newly married couple in the crowd today. Uh, congratulations. But you think of that day and all the prep that goes into that specific moment. The beautifying of oneself, the flowers, the tables, everything for that day to be presentable. I think of two very important people that I met in my life, and those are my kids, Ivy May and Forty James. And I think about the preparation that goes into meeting your child. I mean, think of all the supplies you have to gather, diapers, and more diapers, and then some more diapers, and wipes, and pacifiers, and bottles, and clothes, cribs, bumbo, strollers, swings, things you didn't even know existed prior to getting pregnant. Think about the preparation that that the woman has to go through. It's literally nine months of preparation for delivery. Or you go to birthing classes, you go to a hospital tour, you get your to-go bag ready and get your car seat installed. And then if it's in the midst of COVID, you gotta get your mask as well. And you gotta get your COVID test. And then you step into the hospital and everybody's in their special protective gear. And yet the reality is when that day comes, when the water breaks and you're headed to the hospital, and finally you get to see your little one, more often than not, you still don't feel ready. You don't feel prepared or ready to bring this child into the world, and yet you stand before him or her. You see, today our psalm gives us a glimpse of the Israelites preparing to meet their God, preparing to meet Yahweh. And the question we'll be asking is, are they prepared? Are they worthy? Which I hope causes us to think about our own preparation, reflect on our own readiness, because we will see that the king of glory is coming. Do we know this king? Are we prepared to meet him? Psalm 24 moves us into the city of Jerusalem. Specifically, this approach to the temple itself. And so we see the people of God converging to the house of the Lord. And you see, what I, what I love about this psalm is it so beautifully magnifies the truth and arc of the gospel message itself. For in many ways, we'll see this common framework of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, played out beautifully throughout these 10 verses. See, today we experience the king of glory come to his people. And I believe the right response is to be one of praise and adoration. The king of glory is here, so may we rejoice. 
if we're to break down Psalm 24 to see how is this structured, how is it laid out? It's really laid out into three different stanzas. And ultimately, we'll see these truths throughout. Praise the King of glory, for he is, number one, the creator of all things in verses one and two. Number two, the purifier and blesser of his people in three through six. And then lastly, the victorious Lord of hosts in verses seven through 10. And as I said, we'll see this arc of the gospel flow throughout as well. And really creation is in verses one and two, followed by the fall and redemption in that middle section of three through six. And then lastly, ending with restoration. This is a song we want to sink our teeth into and rejoice. So let's begin with these first two verses. The king of glory is the creator of all. Verses one and two says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and the world of those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Simply put, God is the creator. And when, what did he create? He created all things, the fullness of the earth. Yet not only did God create the world, he actually created everything that dwells in it, dwells therein. You see, our mind should automatically go back to the Genesis 1 account of seeing God create. And all things mean that those that are inanimate, those that are animate, the vegetation, the animals, humanity, from start to finish, he created. And so we see this creator language also points to the fact that not only is he creator, but he is also the sustainer. Because as he creates, his creation depends upon him to function. It's not a deism approach where he's a clockmaker that simply turns it and disappears, but rather he is intricately involved in every component. Life and existence comes from the creator God. Not only that, we see in verse 2 that David uses this powerful imagery to actually characterize the authoritative power of God. See, Israel was not the only nation that had a creation account. It was actually really common that most ancient nations had some kind of story, some kind of myth for how the world was founded, how it was developed. And in most of these ancient accounts, the waters or the seas, the rivers, they played a primary role. In the Mesopotamian account, these chaotic waters, what we see here, seas and rivers, they were actually gods. And the story goes that Marduk was able to defeat these water gods, and it was out of the carcasses of these defeated gods that the world was established. Or in the Canaanite account, you have Yam, which in Hebrew literally means seas. He is one of the water gods that fights against Baal for control of the world. And if you know your Bible, Baal is present throughout much of the Old Testament, showing that he was the superior one. And yet the, the, the water god, Yam, is also known by Judge Nahar. So he has two different names, Yam and Judge Nahar. And Judge Nahar in Hebrew means rivers. So you see the play on word that David does here as he's ultimately saying, look, Rivers and seas, pointing to these Canaanite gods. And he's showing the Israelites that he actually deconstructs 
this Canaanite myth by removing the divine elements that are associated with these gods. He's saying the creator God, the God of the Bible, he's not going to war against these gods. There's no military or power struggle evident in this text, in these first two verses, for he is all-powerful. He simply has creative control and authority from the beginning. His authority and care for his creation is on full display as he holds these chaotic waters in check and actually founds his creation upon it. Therefore, when this first stanza of this psalm, we experience Yahweh as the one who creates and sustains. The world is his. And because the world is his, he exercises his authority and judgment over it. I mean, the idea that the creator has authority and judgment over his creation should make sense to us. Once again, let's think of mine and my wife Anna's relationship with our son, Ford, who's almost three months old. We created him, and thus we have the authority and judgment over him. We care for him. We have compassion on him. He needs us, and let's be real, he needs Anna way more than he needs me at this point. Way more. But we provide for him and sustain him. Without us, he could not survive. We feed him. We change him. We clothe him. We hold him when he cries. We snuggle him. We know what is good for him, and therefore we act accordingly. And in the same way, God loves us. He cares for us. He clothes us. He feeds us. Yet at some point, we recognize within my illustration that, Lord willing, Ford will no longer be dependent on mom and dad. That he'll be able to have the authority to make his own judgments, to make his own decisions. But we recognize that with God, we never step outside of the bounds of God's control. From first breath to last breath, God has control of our life. I mean, think of the fact that we as Christians so often in the Bible are called the children of God. He calls us to come to those as, as those that are children. There's significance in that imagery of a dependence on God. You see, it is, it is through God and God alone that our planet stays in orbit, that we have all that we need of essential elements for life within our atmosphere. The intricacies of this world are by his intelligent design. It is through God and God alone we have being. He is the one that knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows when we rise and when we sleep. He knows how many hairs are on our head. He creates. He sustains. And as David introduces us to this authoritative, creative God, he naturally transitions from God the creator to actually God's people, the pinnacle of his creation. And we are probed with the questions really of who is worthy to stand before the Lord? Who is worthy of his holy place? God is creator. But does that mean that his creation can actually interact with him? we see the answer to be a powerful and resounding yes. As we see that the king of glory is the purifier and blesser of his people. 
verses 3 through 6 read, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and his righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So right here, we we can liken this imagery presented to a myriad of pilgrim worshipers coming to the temple mount, stepping step by step up that hill to commune with God. And this is a journey that for many of them was potentially miles through treacherous terrain. Again, we recognize that this psalm would have been speaking to those throughout history that were pre-exile and post-exile. And a lot of history has transpired. And so many are making this mass transit, this mass journey to stand before God, to stand before his presence. They're preparing themselves to go and participate in worship. And we actually know from archaeological excavations that at Herod's temple, on the southern approach to the temple, there's all these kind of perforated areas within the mountain where all these small ritual baths were located. And it's in these baths that worshipers would cleanse themselves in preparation for the ascent, in preparation for standing before the holiest of gods. And thus the psalmist begins and asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in the holy place? Ultimately, who shall stand before the creator God and be worthy to actually be there? And this is the response we get. He who has clean hands, he who has a pure heart, he who is not idolatrous, he who is truthful, You see, this clean hands and pure hearts connotates that of an inward and outward reflection. Clean hands is not simply scrubbing your hands for 20 seconds to get rid of the dirt. Rather, clean hands in this context actually points to being free of innocent blood. It's an outward measure of one's character and righteousness. And he who has a pure heart, it shifts from the outward to the inward. To ultimately have a right relationship with God, he's saying it's not ultimately on one's outward obedience, but it's also within the integrity of the soul. It's the outward actions should be consistent with and flow out of this inward dependence on God. God's rightful worshipers must be innocent, he says, both in action and mind. It's really this holistic purity that is essential. And he also says it does, it's not for those that lift their souls to what is false. To approach God rightly, he's saying your soul must be focused on the right thing. You see, this Hebrew word for, for soul used here speaks much more powerfully than what we think of as mind and soul. Rather, it's truly the deepest level of the individual, the very essence and being. And so to lift one's soul is to offer one's deepest commitment to something else. 
And we recognize that it is impossible to truly offer our deepest and whole self to more than one thing. Otherwise, we would be split. So he's saying everyone offers their soul to something. And to enter in before God, you cannot enter to something that is false. Something that is ultimately emptiness. And what is false or what is empty is most often characterized and understood to be that of idols or foreign deities. Which again, recognizing the context in which this is written of people going along a long journey, they realistically interacted with many other peoples and their idols and their deities. But here the one that stands before the Lord must be one that has one sole focus on God, the creator. And lastly, he says this person does not swear deceitfully. Pretty much it needs to be one who speaks the truth. The deceit, does, deceitful do not have a place before God. And so it's those who can stand in this holy place. Those who have their inner and outer life integrated into loyalty with the Lord. Who truly serve the Lord. They, he says, will receive blessing in verse 5. And realistically for the Israelites, when they think of blessing, when they think of this covenantal God they have a relationship with, they're going to go to the promises of God. Where in Deuteronomy 28, God literally tells them, this is what my promises are of the covenant. And this will be on the screen. He says in 28, if you faithfully obey then the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come and blessed shall you be when you go out. See, not only is he saying these are the, the blessings that the people of God will experience, but then he goes on later in that verse to say you will also experience righteousness. And, and righteousness carries the connotation of justice and vindication. He's saying justice will be done. And how will justice be done? Well, by the God of salvation, the God of his salvation. You see, ultimately, we're, we're getting to the crux of it. That those that can be righteous before God are those that have been granted righteousness by God. Not earned by faultless compliance with external law. Rather, righteousness comes from God the Savior. And these blessings, this righteousness, he says, will be for generations to come. For those who seek the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, the creator of God. There is no expiration date for God's blessings and righteousness. See, these blessings are glorious. Righteousness and justice are, are what we desire as a people. And yet we look at the opening question of the section once again. 
Who shall ascend the hill? Who shall stand before the Lord? There's requirements of a clean hands, pure heart, not idolatrous, and one that is truthful. We can't help but ponder. Who is worthy to stand before God? Because it doesn't take much reflection to acknowledge our own answer. No one. Who has clean hands? 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. See, though our hands might be physically clean, they are figuratively stained by blood. Have you ever wished harm on someone? Even if it's just that split second in your head, if you were wronged and you want them to be wronged in return. Have you ever despised someone? It could be that simple, you're getting cut off in traffic and all the thoughts and words that pop into your head. Have you ever been wronged and desired justice to be done at whatever means necessary? Who has clean hands? No one. Well, who has a pure heart? Romans 3 says, none are righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I mean, again, think of the often used illustration. That if we were to take your thoughts throughout a day and project it onto a movie screen, who are you inviting to that viewing? No one. You're like, I don't even want to show up to that viewing. Who has a pure heart? It doesn't take long to answer that. No one. Well, who is not idolatrous? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and desire the other. You cannot serve God and fill in the blank. Jesus actually says money, and yet we recognize that for all of us in this room, it might not be money. But what is your fill in the blank? Is it comfort, notoriety, a significant other, work, worth, influence? Can we actually say Jesus plus nothing equals everything? I mean, the famous words of John Calvin, the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. You see, we are an idol factory and we are working overtime. Who is idolatrous or is not idolatrous? No one. Okay, but who is truthful? Scripture says it's not that we don't speak truth. It's rather that we speak death. We speak venom of deadly snakes upon people. Again, Romans 3, their throat is an empty grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. See, it's not that we never tell the truth. We know we make truthful statements much of the time. But is truth the very essence of our being? Truth is an adjective used for some of my life, 
but could I actually use it to say this is who I am in and of myself? Just think of that little white lie, that partial truth, or that fluffed up statement to avoid awkwardness. Who is truthful? No one. So I ask the question yet again. Who is worthy to stand before God? Based on the synopsis from the last few minutes, we have the resounding thought in our head. No one. So is there any hope? Will anyone ever be able to ascend the mount? Will anyone ever be able to stand before God and worship him rightly? Through the grace of God, through the gospel, this answer shifts from no one to the one who comes through his son. You see, the psalm is, is not a self-righteous declaration of innocence, but rather it's an admission of one's dependence on the merciful God. Remember, their righteousness, our righteousness, in this psalm says comes from the God of his salvation. The God of our salvation. And we as believers know that our salvation comes through Christ. You see, this psalm is not a do-better psalm. It's not a, hey, here are the ten easy steps to make yourself worthy of approaching the temple of God. Because apart from Christ, there, there's nothing you can do. This is a look to the God of mercy. Look to the cross, where you will see that you are worthless, but you stand before the one that is worthy. No one is righteous before God. No one is worthy except for the one who actually descended from heaven to commune with his people. No one is worthy except the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. Clean hands. Jesus is the very fulfillment of the law. Not only are his hands without a speck of dirt, but he actually spilled his blood in our place. A pure heart. Jesus is the only one that is unblemished in every cell. Jesus was tempted in every way but without sin, and it's his purity of heart that actually made him the only perfect and spotless lamb that could purify our filthy and wretched hearts. Idolatrous? Jesus was not idolatrous, for he was God in the flesh. He was both fully man and fully God, and there's, there's nothing above him to be worthy of praise. Instead of being chained to idols, he was the one that actually broke every chain. He creates us anew and makes us slaves to righteousness instead of slaves to the sins of the flesh. Truthful? He's truth incarnate. He is the definition of truth. He is the word of God. What he says comes to pass. What he says brings life and life to the fullest. See, for Jesus and Jesus alone can ascend the hill. He needs no purifying ceremonies. He needs no bathing rituals. He need not even offer a sacrifice. 
And yet, he became the sacrifice for us. That we, as wicked sinners, could be worthy to stand before our God. Again, Scripture says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, we we can say we can ascend the hill, we can stand before God, because our faith in Christ brings us with Christ to the temple mount. So praise be to Christ, for we have his imputed righteousness and now can stand before our God. Through faith in Christ and Christ alone, we have been made right, we have been cleansed and purified. We can stand before our maker. We are blessed. And as I stated at the beginning, this psalm beautifully walks through the arc of the gospel. As we saw in verses 1 and 2, we see this creation account. We see the God that creates. And 3 through 6, we see our fallenness where we simply say we can't. We cannot have pure hearts. We cannot have clean hands. We are idolatrous people. We don't speak truth. And yet we see the redemption comes through the God of salvation, who through his Son has made a way to stand before God. And lastly, in verses 7 through 10, we see this continued right response to God and to his gospel as we see really the restorative king of glory return victorious from battle. You see, the king of glory is the victorious Lord of hosts. 7 through 10 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Well, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Well, who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. See, in this third stanza, the scene is that these pilgrim worshipers, they've actually been gained admission into the temple courts. And they eagerly await the return of the king, this king of glory. And so we enter into this question-answer liturgy that's performed at the gates of the temple. And it's understood that this would be a ritual reenactment or enactment as the Lord's army comes back carrying the Ark of the Covenant the very presence of God. And as the ark is being carried up to the temple, you have those inside and those outside with this call and response. It's seeing that the holy of holies is coming back to the temple and military victory. And so really we can imagine this glorious, victorious army carrying the ark. And as they get to the temple compound, they're saying, open the gate, The king of glory has arrived to where those on the walls, they're told to lift up their head, which is truly a sign of joy. It's the excitement of lifting one's head in victory rather than bowing in defeat. And those within respond, well, who is this king of glory? To which those outside the temple boldly proclaim, 
The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. See, their response emphasizes the glory, the strength, the power, the authority of the God, their God, Yahweh. And again, we recognize that this this question of who is the king of glory, it's not a real question of identity. They're not actually asking, hey, who's outside the temple? We don't actually know. Rather, this is a formulaic question and answer that really builds momentum, excitement, joy, as Yahweh has returned. So that as we get to the end of the psalm, there's no question of who is this God, who is this king of glory. Rather, it's a joyful shout of the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Think of your sports playing days or a myriad of sports movies. And before the game, what typically happens? The team huddles up and they start rocking back and forth. And someone says, what time is it? To where everybody else responds, game time. What time is it? Game time. I can't hear you. What time is it? Game time. That's in a sense what is going on in this beautiful, powerful imagery of the people of God rejoicing that their God is victorious. I mean, you can't not get pumped up in those scenes of seeing people with raw emotion getting stoked for what is to come. The people want to worship him in fullness and truth with joy and excitement. See, this is the powerful reality. When God's people through faith in Christ await God in worship, the king of glory shows up. And our king is victorious. As I stated, this realistically was sung in response to military victory. Of God going with his people and defeating those who stand against him. And though we don't really have these physical battles today, we know that God is still fighting for us. For we're told in Ephesians, we do not fight against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, the battle is raging. And our God, the King of glory, does not lose. Rather, he is the victorious Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of armies leading his people to victory. And you see, we're, we're blessed with the word of God because in the end, in, in Revelation, God actually gives us a glimpse of this final battle. The battle that ends all battles. And it's a longer section, but I think it's so worth reading. In Revelation 19, we see the king in all his glory. This will be on the screen starting in verse 11. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and he is righteous. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are like diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. For his mouth comes a deep, sharp sword with him to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he gathered to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in his presence has done the signs by which he deceived those who have received the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. These were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's a gruesome image at the end. And yet it's a powerful image that this is the king in all his glory. And at the end of time, he comes and he reigns victorious because the Lord of hosts is Lord of hosts yesterday, today, and in the millennium to come. Does this not excite us? Does this not pump us up that this is our God? He is mighty to save. He is victorious. He is worthy of our praise and adoration. And so we, like these Israelites, can lift our heads in joy. We can lift our heads in hope and anticipation, for we know the end. Praise be to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Praise be to King Jesus, who made those who are lowly, those who are far off, those who are destitute, those who are blemished. He has made us whole. He has redeemed and restored. We've been made righteous. Thanks be to God. And so we praise our God, for we know our King will return. We know he will restore all things and he will make all things right. And as the psalm ends, who is our King of glory? He is the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for psalms like this. Psalms that in many ways are an anthem and battle cry of rejoicing in who your Son is. It's introspective, Lord, as we look to our lack of worth, and yet it also pushes us out of ourselves to look at Jesus, the one who came, the one through who, him, we actually have worth. Lord God, we thank you for your son in whom we have life. Lord, we thank you for the king of glory, that he is victorious and worthy of praise. In your name. Amen.